Or just, just go ahead of them. That's fine. If you got a Bible, we'll be in two places this morning. You can open up to Revelation 9, uh, and then we'll also be in Revelation uh, 11. Uh, I'm actually going to read out of 11, Revelation 11 here in just a moment, if you want to go there first. And if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Revelation 11, I'm going to read uh, verses 15 through 19. And it says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud noises in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are coming back, that you are in complete and total control of history, even when it doesn't look like you are. Pray today that we would make a big deal of Jesus, that when we finally arrive in heaven, it won't be because we were awesome. It won't be because we were faithful or amazing. It'll be because Jesus was. So let us make a big deal of him today. If there's anyone in here that does not know Jesus, um, I pray that you would press on their heart today the seriousness of these texts. That, 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 that for those of us who do know him, this will be a wonderful day. But for those of us who do not, it will be a very scary day of dread, uh, of judgment, and ultimately of separation from you. And so today, would you press that on them and, and, and that you would um, save them and, and change their lives today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Um, we'll spend two more weeks in, uh, in Revelation, uh, and then we're going to uh, uh, press pause for the summer. Uh, and then we will resume it uh, again about August. Uh, part of that is, is, is a, that there's a natural division in, in the book. In, in fact, starting in chapter 11, uh, we, we kind of start the second part uh, of Revelation. Revelation is divided into two sections. Uh, the first section, which we finish next week, shows us the struggle among men. So in other words, that's the struggle between believers and unbelievers. So, so as we've seen so far, and, and I think you'll, you'll recognize this, is that the world attacks the church, but the church is avenged and protected and victorious. So we've seen that since the opening of the sixth seal and the trumpet judgments being a direct answer to the prayers of the saints that we read about in chapter 6, verse 10. Remember, the prayers of the saints were, how long, O Lord? How long will we suffer? How long will we continue to go through these things? And God says, let me answer that for you. 
And then starting in chapter 12, we see Satan's attack against the church. And so it opens up with uh, the dragon trying to eat the seed of a woman. And when he fails at that, he then turns all of his anger and all of his fury at God's church trying to destroy God's bride. But we'll look at that in the fall. So let me just lay out for you very quickly then where we are so far. And and let me try to to clear up any misconceptions you may have because I've been preaching long enough to know this, that people hear what they want to hear when you preach. Right? Because I get stuff all the time. Well, you said this. Well, no, actually, I didn't say that. You heard that. But let me show you what I said. Okay? And so people hear what they want to hear. Uh, and so let me, let me just explain uh, the book for you. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's plan of the salvation of the world. God laid this plan out for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Immediately following the fall, Jesus said that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan, there is a rescuer and a redeemer coming. You will bite his heel. You will think you've won, but in the end, this man, this savior will bruise your head. This savior will kill you, and he will ultimately win. And so from that point on, the Bible begins to unfold, and the Old Testament unfolds with signposts that point us to the coming savior. So we see it in the law as it shows us the holiness that God requires of us as human beings. It shows us that we fall short of that law every single day. We see it in the sacrificial system pointing to a savior who will ultimately die for the sins of the people, whose blood will be shed to redeem people. The prophets throughout the Old Testament constantly tell people uh, to repent and to keep their eyes set on a day when God himself will come and save his people. Then we get to the New Testament and the gospels show us this savior that's been promised in the person of Jesus Christ who lives the life we should have lived, who dies the death that we deserve. He satisfies the demands of God's law. He satisfies the wrath of God towards us. He rises from the dead, showing us that the check he wrote for our sins cleared the bank. He defeated death and he broke the power of sin. Now, all of us in this room who by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone trust in him, we are justified, we are made right in the sight of God. We're set on the path of sanctification or growth in the Christian life. And the primary way that God grows us and sanctifies us is through his church, is through the local body of believers coming together to worship, to encourage, to exhort, to call out sin, and to love one another. Because the point of the church is that God is saving a bride for his son, Jesus. And after the gospels, the rest of the New Testament shows us Christ's church growing. And the book of Revelation shows us the conclusion of human history where Christ's bride arrives safely in the new heavens and the new earth. And as I've said time and time again, we may disagree on the timeline and that's okay, right? Your timeline that you've believed in may be a little different than the way I'm laying it out. That's fine. But the overall theme that we can agree on is that Jesus wins, right? He he won all the way back at the beginning. Jesus wins, and so we can agree on that. And so the book was written to encourage seven literal churches in Asia Minor. It was written to encourage us. Remember, it was written to them for us. It's written to encourage us that although times are tough and although we may be 
persecuted, although we may struggle, if we're in Christ, we will persevere. If we're in Christ, we will endure to the end that Jesus will return one day to rapture his church, okay? Yes, I believe in the rapture, okay? All right, are we good? Are we clear? The only difference is this. I don't believe in a secret rapture where Mary rolls over and Buford's PJs are left behind, right? Because Buford got taken and she was left. That's what I said, all right? That there will not be a secret rapture because when Jesus returns, there ain't gonna be nothing secret about it, folks. He will return with the cry of command, as it says in 1 Thessalonians. And everyone on this earth will hear it, they will see it, they will know. And we as a church will be caught up in the sky to meet our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, okay? Now, while we're waiting on that, we as a church will go through trials and tribulation. John says in Revelation 1-9 that he's our partner in the tribulation. And so as we've seen, the tribulation that we live in now will get more intense as the day draw near, okay? I believe in a great tribulation. The only difference is, is I believe the church will go through it instead of being vacuumed out of it. That we will go through a difficult time. But although we go through many difficulties, we're sealed by God through the Holy Spirit. We will not face the wrath of God that Jesus endured in our place. That's great news. So remember our little saying, main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. The main plain thing is Jesus wins and his church will be triumphant, right? So, so let's kind of keep that in mind as we finish up these trumpet judgments. And so last week we started looking at the trumpet judgments and we said that the trumpet judgments are just a recapitulation or a repeating of the sealed judgments. That these trumpet judgments are just commonplace throughout the church age, that they're happening right here, right now on this earth. So the first four sealed judgments, right? The, the four horsemen go together and the first four trumpets go together. And they are judgment that God inflicts on the world in the form of natural disasters. Now, let me, let me clear something up. When I say natural disasters, I'm not saying that God looked at, 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 at New Orleans and said, okay, listen, Mardi Gras, gotta go, all right? So I'm gonna throw Katrina at you, all right? That, that's not what we mean, all right? Katrina happened as just an unfortunate circumstance of where they sit geographically, Okay, so we're not saying it's like specifically target over specific things, but the fact that we have natural disasters of this kind is evidence though that God is actively judging the world and these disasters, when they happen, are meant to be warning signs. They're blinking lights for unbelievers, for earth dwellers, to realize that there's something bigger than them, something beyond them, and that they need to repent and to believe the gospel. Those were the first four trumpets. The fifth trumpet were judgments brought about as a result of demonic activity. That these demons are allowed to roam the earth and they are allowed to torment unbelievers. But ultimately that they're bound by the Lord. So remember they weren't allowed to kill anybody. He said you can torment them, do not kill them. He put a time limit on them. He said five months. And we see this in our world today. We talked about that last week. As you look around you, 
People are being driven mad in their search for significance, in their search for meaning, trying to find something that just completes or makes their life feel whole or fulfilled, right? These demons are are actively tormenting people all over the world right now. Now today we're gonna look at trumpet six and seven. So after trumpet six, just like seal six, we get a parenthetical interlude. Right, So we get a, a, a break in between there where we see events that happen between the sixth and the seventh seal. Right, That's why they're, they're tied together. All right? And then we see uh, the seventh seal, which would be ultimately the final coming. And we're going to look at both of those uh, this morning. So look at chapter 9, if you will. Chapter, uh, chapter 9, we're going to start in, in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet... And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the sixth angel blows his trumpet. We hear a voice. We're not sure if it's the voice of Jesus, an angel, or God the Father. We're not sure. It doesn't really make a difference. But the fact that it comes from the golden altar connects this trumpet with the prayers of the saints. So remember back to Revelation chapter six, verse nine and 10. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, right? So this trumpet is a direct response to that prayer, that God hears our prayers and he answers. So four, the four horns of the altar, four stands for completeness in the Bible. So these four horns symbolize the completeness of God's power coming from his presence, a power that he is exercising in response to the prayers of these saints. And so this voice says, hey, release the four angels who've been bound at the river Euphrates. Now, these angels have been restrained against their will, that God has restrained them. So this strongly suggests that these four angels are demons. They're demonic. Some scholars see this as a recapitulation or a repeating of the angels of chapter 7. Remember them? Holding back the four winds of the peel the people of God have been sealed. So these four demons, he says, to untie their hands and allow them to let go of whatever they're holding back. Now in John's time, in the time of writing this, the Euphrates River was the border of the Roman Empire. On the other side of the Roman Empire was the Parthian army. And if you go back and read history, the Romans were scared to death of the Parthians, right? They were these savages, they were these barbarians, and what they would do is they would come across and they would raid with their horsemen and their bows, and they would come over and they would scare the, the dog out of these people. They didn't like them, they were invaders, right? They haunted the nightmares of the Romans that lived across the Euphrates. But the Jewish people viewed the Euphrates as the northern frontier of Palestine, In the Old Testament, it's the Euphrates where Assyria, Babylon, Persia, all those came from. So they would understand that this vision means that that there's these invaders coming to ravage, to pillage, to hurt, to torment, to cause problems. They would have got that, right? So in verse 15, we, we read about this. It says, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. So first off, notice this. These invaders are coming at God's appointed time. Verse 15 tells us that. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released. So contrary to what we think and what we see going on around us, God's in complete control of history. God's in complete control of everything. So God's not only in control of what Satan and demons are allowed to do, but he's also in control of the precise time when these demons and Satan have been allowed to do these things, right? In other words, folks, they're on a short lease. You get that, right? So it doesn't literally mean they're gonna kill 33 and one-third percent of humanity. It goes back to what we said last week. It's just describing a partial judgment on the earth. In other words, it's not complete. It's not final judgment. It's not the end of the age. And it appears that these four angels have control over a massive army of demonic horsemen. And don't get hung up on the number, all right? This is where a lot of people have made mistakes is they get hung up on this number and they've tried to go, okay, well, let me identify which country currently right now has a million man army or a two million man and, sorry, it's 2021 million woman and man army, okay? All right, which country has those things, all right? And they try to figure all this out. But, but here's the problem with that. You gotta go back and read the Greek. The word myrios in Greek is used to refer to an innumerable multitude. So G.K. Bill helps us. He says, never in the Bible does it refer to a specific number unless prefixed by a numerical adjective, as in three myriads or 30,000. So use of the double plural, 10,000s of 10,000s, prefaced by the further intensifier twice, make it almost impossible to calculate accurately and shows that a symbolic reference is indicated here. So in the Greek, it doesn't really give a word. It doesn't give a number. In the Greek, it's just saying, yeah, there's way more of them than I can count. There's just so many of them. There's no way you can get an accurate number of it. So it's, it's representing a, a large demonic army sent to destroy and ultimately cause war. And then John begins to pile up metaphors to describe these demons. He describes them as ferocious and dreadful. And what he wants you to do is he wants you to feel the ferocity behind these creatures. So the riders, uh, had, uh, the riders of the horses, they had breastplates the color of fire, sapphire, sulfur. So think uh, judgment, right? Think fireballs coming from the sky, that kind of color. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. So they were ferocious, they're dangerous. Out of the mouths of the horses came fire and smoke, sulfur. Uh, these metaphors, anytime you see them in the book of Revelation, fire, smoke, sulfur, it's indicative of judgment. In verse 19, the power is said to be in their tails. It says their tails are like serpents. That's a, that's a reference to Satan himself. It, it would refer to, to their deception of unbelievers. Their tails are, are there to deceive non-Christians. 
We know that because in Revelation 12, it shows us the sweeping of the serpent's tail is symbolic of his deception of the angels whom he's caused to fall. When Satan led his rebellion in heaven and he deceived other angels to fall and to go with him. And it says these angels are bound to the Euphrates and then they're released to kill with fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And if you think about it, the similarities between Sodom and Gomorrah are pretty striking, are they not, if you know that story? Genesis 19, 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Genesis 19, 28, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And here's where it gets scary, is if you remember back in chapter nine, verse five, the demons were not allowed to kill. Remember, he just said torment. But here, this army is allowed to kill. The word translated apukeno refers to physical death in Revelation. That Greek word apukeno is throughout Revelation. And so it would fit the context seeing what, what verse 20 is about to tell us. So, so John's envisioning this demonic host under God's sovereignty killing a sizable number of earth dwellers. In other words, killing a sizable number of unbelievers. So whether through illness, accident, natural disaster, famine, and ultimately through war. Now we don't have to go through all that because we did with the four horsemen, but is this not still happening in our day and age now? People are dying of all these causes. In verse 19, the word wound means the same as, as torment. So it means that these demons are allowed to harass people through forms of spiritual and psychological torment and emotional anguish. Again, all this is happening in our current day and age, and it will continue to happen until the Lord returns, right? Verse 20, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So John gives you and I a typical list of idols according to their material composition. You find these throughout the Old Testament. And John's saying the worship of idols in whatever form that idolatry takes, right? Whatever it is that, that you're worshiping other than God is a form of, of an idol. Whether it's our, our job, our money, our spouse, our kids, whatever it is, he's saying that that idolatry is actually the worship of demons. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, he says, no, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So in other words, all idolatry, whatever form it assumes, is demonic activity. That's why the Bible's so clear that we must constantly recognize our idols and repent and put the Lord in his proper place. In verse 20, they're described as not repenting of their sins. So again, all these things are happening. They're blinking signs. They're warning signs for unbelievers. These unbelievers see it. They're not repenting of their sins. And then he gives us a list that's, that's very familiar to the Ten Commandments, right? At the end of verse 20 there. Uh, Nor did they repent of their murderers, their sorceries, their sexual immoralities, their thefts. And so because of that, his judgment falls on all those who see the signs, they see the warnings, and they refuse to repent. Now at this point, I, I wanna caution us here 
against taking this demonic horde and associating it with a current country. These demons are, are set loose on the earth to bring destruction. They're bringing destruction right now. They're very real, they're very active. And so Richard Phillips in his commentary has this quote, uh, and I apologize, it's, it's rather lengthy, but I think it gets across the point that, that, that this passage of scripture wants us to see, all right? Listen to what he says. The history of mankind shows nations repeatedly turning away from God in order to raise up their own glory, right? Sound familiar? Every empire promises its own salvation on earth with peace and prosperity. History records them all as crashing before invading forces of unforeseen ferocity. Usually the origins of these conquerors are either surprising or unexplicable. Historians struggle to explain the source of the, of the Gothic invasions that destroyed the Roman Empire under mighty leaders such as Attila the Hun. Centuries later, the hordes of Islam slept across North Africa with virtually no warning. In the early 13th century, the Mongol armies led by the charismatic leader Genghis Khan rose up with unexplained genius and vigor, conquering from China in the east to the Danube in the west. The Mongols so resembled the riders of the sixth trumpet, listen, that Christians viewed them as the literal fulfillment of revelation, labeling them the devil's horsemen. In the 14th century, the armies of England were suddenly equipped with invincible long bowmen. Histor historians do not know how this prowess for archery was developed in England and Wales or why it suddenly died out, but the military advantage granted to the Edwardian kings resulted in the Hundred Years' War. The 20th century witnessed the shocking scourge of the Nazi panzer divisions, which so many people understandably compared to Revelation 9's horsemen. In the 21st century, a bloody passion has inflamed Islamic jihadists in a way that defies logic. These otherwise unexplainable conquerors whose bows, swords, and bombs have killed great swaths of humanity are hard to explain apart from the sixth trumpet's vision of warfare let loose on earth from the pits of hell. It's ongoing. And every time we try to attempt to label a certain nation with this, we find out that other people have done the same too. So in other words, this is happening in our current day and age, and it will continue to go on. Now, just like the sealed judgments, chapter 10 and most of 11 give us an interlude, right, where we see things that are happening between the two comings of Christ. And we're going to look at chapter 10 next week, but I want to go to chapter 11, verse 15, and let's look at the final, the final trumpet. This is where I really want us to focus our time today. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. 
And there were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. So the seventh angel blows his trumpet. And folks, that's the final trumpet. That's the last one. And a voice cries out that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and our Lord shall now reign forever. And then suddenly the scene shifts from the earth and what's happening here to back to the throne room and we see the church's work is at last complete. That we're caught up in glory in the air together with Christ, right? We're raptured, see, there it is again. Just, right, make that note, Byron believes in it, all right? It's just very visible, like I said, it's not secret. And then check this out. I want you to check this. Joel Beakey tells us this, that this passage in Revelation describing what will happen after the blowing of the last trumpet is proleptic or anticipatory. So check this. John is so certain of the fulfillment of what he prophesies that the way he's writing right now, the way he's speaking of it, is he's speaking of all of it in the past tense. He's speaking as though it's already accomplished fact that Jesus has already come back and he's already won. That's the way he's writing, okay? Come on, that's awesome. Like he's describing this as if it's a done deal. It's already finished. And so the 24 elders, once again, they resume their posture, right? These guys don't do anything. They stand up, they fall down. They stand up, they fall down. They worship God in his presence. They cry out in gratitude. They call him the Lord God Almighty. The word almighty means sovereign ruler over all. And I love it because John's just rubbing it in Caesar's face because the Caesars had adopted that little title for themselves. Caesar, sovereign ruler over all. And John's showing them like, hey, yeah, you're just a charlatan. You wait till the final trumpet. You'll find out that you were nothing. That my God really is the ruler over everything. And then check this part out, okay? Are you ready? They proclaim in verse 17, the one who is and the one who was, but do you notice that something's missing? It's no longer the one who is and was and is to come. He's already come back. So now he's the one who is and the one who was. The, the time for him to return is here, that the promise of ultimate victory is so certain that John is writing as if this has already happened that the nations raged against God, but they're met by God's rage against the nations. And then the time arrives for the dead to be judged. That mirrors Revelation 20. Jay read this this morning to us, and it says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. But then it says that believers, on the other hand, receive their heavenly reward. Everything that God promised them, crowns, robes, thrones, they get all of that. And then the last part says that the Ark of the Covenant's opened in, in God's temple, okay? Remember, this is scenes in heaven, it's not on earth, in God's temple. And the ark represented God's holiness. 
If you remember from the Old Testament, they couldn't even look on the ark without fear of dying. There were special instructions in the ark for the priest who covered it so that they could back up over the thing to drop the, the sheet, the covering over it, so they never had to look at it. But here, what we see is that the ark is right in the middle and it's open so it can be seen. So it indicates that sin has been defeated forever, that the barrier to God's presence has been torn down. It's a symbol that represents God's covenant with us, his people. So look at it this way, church. He's saying this has already happened. This is a done deal. It's as good as finished. So think about this with me and get a little bit more excited, right? What a day that's gonna be. The trumpet's going to sound, and at last, your race is over. No more weariness. No more tiredness. No more pain. No more cancer. No more disease. It is finished. Our combat with sin, right? Do you have sin? I do. There's junk that I wish that I could get rid of. I still trip over it. It's over. We don't have to fight it anymore. We don't have to run our race with perseverance anymore, right? It's like those kids at the track meet this weekend. They ran, they crossed the finish line, it's over, they can collapse, it's done. I love that. We don't have to walk by faith anymore because we'll see Jesus face to face. All those things that you fight mentally, all those things you fight externally, my kid's gonna get up and run to Jesus. It's gonna be over. It's gonna be an unbelievable day, guys. And that's what this is describing. So listen to me, Christian. Life in this world is tough. It will be. The judgments of God are here. You and I as a church, you're not so special that you get vacuumed out of this thing. You will endure some of these things. We will endure tribulation as God gives believers up to their sin. But listen, he never promised us protection, only perseverance. He promises that you and I won't face the worst judgment, that we will not be separated from him forever, but instead we'll be with him. So look at me, if you're a believer, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't stop. It's as good as finished. John just wrote it. He wrote it in the past tense. It's done. Keep your eyes on him when it's hard. There's a celebration that awaits you at the very, very end, right? Don't ever say you can't. Don't ever say it can't be done. Don't ever say I can't do it to the call of the mission. Don't ever say I can't persevere when you have such resources, when you have such promises that God has granted to you and given you. Don't ever say you can't because victory is already assured, brothers and sisters. That's good news. And then finally, listen to me, if you don't know Jesus, that ain't gonna be a day for you to get excited about. That is going to be a day of dread. That is going to be a day of woe. That is going to be a day of judgment. So today, listen to me, would you trust in Jesus for what you can't do? Would you find rest? Would you find salvation at the foot of the cross today? And so what started out as a day of dread for you, you can walk out the door and say, ooh, it's gonna be a good day now. So here's what we're gonna do. As I'm gonna have my deacons come down, the band's gonna come back up, and we're gonna go to the Lord's table, and what we're gonna do is this. We're gonna to remind ourselves that the only reason we get to stand on that day is because of the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. And so if you're in here and you're a Christian, 
and maybe you're not a member, maybe you're a guest, then listen, come to the table with us this morning. But we do believe that what we're about to do is for the family. And so if you're not a Christian, please just sit this out. There's no judgment. We're not going to look down on you, but this is something that God's just given to us as, as a body of believers. Second thing is that if you're a believer in here this morning, the Bible says for us not to take this in an unholy way. So before I stand up here in a moment to, to, to eat the elements, check your heart. Make sure there's no areas of unconfessed sin or things in your life that you need to give to him today. And then here in a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna remind ourselves of what Jesus has done. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day and thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for the way that John writes. I thank you that he reminds us that this thing is as good as done. It's finished, it's accomplished. And so therefore, as believers, we can endure. As believers, we can persevere and that we should never say I can't to the promises that you've made. Father, what a day that's gonna be when we finally see your face. So now as we go to your table, Father, I pray that we would honor the sacrifice that you made for us, that we would remember that the only reason we're gonna be standing on that day is not because we're awesome, but because Jesus is. And it's in your name we pray.